I have this friend in Memphis, Tennessee. His name is Ali, Ali Chambers. And Ali planted a church, and he called it Mosaic Memphis, Mosaic Church Memphis. And I remember when we moved here in 2012 to work on uh, the church plant that is now Haven Ridge, I remember thinking through a lot of different names that I liked, names that had meaning. And believe it or not, Haven Ridge has a meaning. We don't talk about that a lot. If you don't know that meaning, remind me and I'll tell you. Otherwise, it'll be just a, a fun scavenger hunt for you. So, but I remember thinking, man, Mosaic is a, is a really, really cool name because of what it means. And then I remembered, ah, Ali already has the name, you know. And, and who cares, you know, if a church in Memphis is named Mosaic and a, and a church and a church in Greer, South Carolina is named Mosaic. Who cares? Well, I did. Okay, so, um, you know, but I, I really appreciate that name. I thought it was really cool. I think of artistry. I'm not an artist in that sense. Uh, I dabble in music, and that's artistry, you know, but I'm not someone who can draw or can talk to you about paintings or anything like that or the mood behind it or the emotions or what the artist was feeling or trying to convey. I'm just not that guy. If you walk through a gallery with me, it won't be very fun, you know, and so, but I like artistry. I appreciate artistry. I appreciate all forms of artistry, whether you are a, uh, whether you work with steel or work with, or work with metals to create, whether you work with clay or whether you are a musician or something like that. I, I'm up here with a lot of musicians every Sunday, you know, and I'm just kind of the rhythm guy. That's what I've always been. You know, and that's not false humility. That's just, that's what I am. I, you know, Aaron and, and Robert and those guys and, and, and Jamie and, and, uh, and who's the other one? Evan, sorry, forgot Evan. How could you forget Evan with the pink shirt? Uh, yeah, these guys are, uh, you know, and Tracy vocally, you know, uh, these guys and this lady right here are, are very musically inclined, and I'm kind of, I'm a pretty face. I understand that, and that's okay. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's artistry, and I appreciate it. I like it. The idea of a mosaic, though, I have so much appreciation for that because of the creativity behind that, because of the patience. For example, uh, and there are noteworthy mosaics across the world that people travel to just to see these, and we won't go through a list of those for time's sake, but just know that they're there. Maybe you've seen something like this before, but a mosaic is fantastic. You can have this really large picture, and you stand away at a distance and you see it at its full scope and you understand, ah, that's, a, that's an image, whether it's Edgar Allan Poe or whether it's the Empire State Building or whatever the image is. But as you get closer, what you see are these tiny individual frames. And it's not random or by happenstance, obviously, that they put these frames here. They consider texture. They consider color. They consider all of these things so you can understand and maybe appreciate the time and the effort, the creativity, the patience that goes in to creating, whether it's painting or gluing, a mosaic. And what I really appreciate about mosaic, most of all, is the fact that it is a beautiful representation of the bigger picture that God is producing for the world to see, for the heavens to see on a universal scale. And so that is an important concept to keep in your mind when you are approaching the Scriptures. Because you come to a place like John chapter 6 and you see Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's a small pericope, it's a small section of the text. 
and something you've probably been taught ever since you were a little bitty. Maybe for some of us who are old enough, because I am, we stood by a felt board and we stuck these little pieces on here. Here's your loaves and here's your fish and stick it over there by the little boy. And then Jesus is going to take it, he's going to multiply and he's going to feed all these people. So it's a story that we're familiar with, but it's a story that serves as a very small frame in the larger image that God is putting together. So all of the Bible pieces together to make one image. There's a tremendous continuity between every single verse that's in the Bible, every single story that's in the Bible. And your story, as well as all that happens in the Scripture, is still a part of this grand narrative. The Bible's canonized, the the Bible's finalized, but your story continues, and God is using your story with his intentions for good and for his glory to piece together this grand and glorious mosaic that he will one day reveal to the whole world. And it's this wonderful, wonderful thing. And that's where we are when we get to John chapter 6. So I don't want to make the mistake of being dismissive about this text. I don't want us to check out because, you know what, I know this story. Jesus shows up, there's a crowd following, he feeds them, let's go home. It's not that simple. Like everything, we go through these stories which the direct application of it stands out immediately. Okay, okay, John's gospel is an apologetic, I get that. Obviously, he's included this story, which by the way is just a speck compared to all that Jesus has done, which we'll see momentarily. But you have this little thing happening. John is using it obviously to promote the deity of Christ because what did John say? John says, I've written these things so that you may believe, so that in these things you may have life. Believe what? Specifically, the deity of Jesus. That Jesus is fully God, fully man. And this is on par for everything that we've seen so far. The miracles that we've seen, the conversations, all that Jesus has done and John has recorded has been to promote his deity. It's John's apologetic. It's John's defense of the deity of Christ. Because if you lose the deity of Christ, you lose Christianity. That's why this matters so much. So if you'll tune in with me to John chapter 6. Now what I'm going to do, I'm not going to read every verse, I'm going to paraphrase this. And here's why I'm going to paraphrase it. Here's why I'm going to tell the story rather than read the story. Because this is the only miracle recorded in all four, the only miracle recorded in the Gospels that's recorded in all four Gospels. And that should tell us something. There's something that God is communicating to us. And for those of you that may not understand how that works, it's not a problem. It doesn't call into question uh, the authenticity or the reliability of the text. And let me explain it this way. Let's say that you witness something and I witness something. I'm going to say, hey, this is what happened here, X, Y, and Z. Maybe I omit one part of the story. Okay, so Evan and Catherine, they go to buy Evan a truck yesterday, right? If you, if you haven't seen it, he'll give you a tour of it, I'm sure. So Evan got this beautiful truck, this, this, this white Silverado out there. Lovely, lovely, lovely truck, right? It's not a Jeep, I get that, but it's a truck, right? So he has this truck, and it's great. And he and his wife went to purchase this truck. Now, I was a witness to this purchasing, okay? So I go, and I witness him purchase this truck, and here's how it went down. Evan talks to the salesman. Salesman talks to him. Salesman doesn't come down like Evan wants him to, so Elvin sla- so Elvin, sorry. So Evan slaps the salesman in the face, and he goes home with the truck. Now, I've told you a witness account of the story. So somebody else witnesses the story. Let's say Tiffany witnessed the story. And she says, here's how it went down. Elvin, Elvin, I'm sorry, Elvin. I'm sorry. Evan and Catherine went to buy this truck. Evan 
haggles over the price with the salesman, salesman to salesman. Beautiful thing, right? Salesman to salesman. And Evan says, bring this price down. Salesman says no. So Evan pops him in the face. And then the other salesman worked Evan over pretty good until Evan cried for his mama. And then Evan goes home, right? So now I've added, I told you a version of the story, and then Tiffany told you a version of the story. The only difference is I omitted a certain detail. It doesn't make what I told untrue, but it was with the omission of one certain detail. It's slightly nuanced. Tiffany's version was just more thorough. Now, obviously, I was not there, and that didn't really happen, but that's an example. So you have these apostles who witness things, and then they give an account of these things. And they don't give an account of every single detail. Their details change. No, they don't change. They're either the details are there or they are not there. So, for example, in John's gospel, I'll just walk you through some of the story. Jesus, this is shortly after John the Baptist, is beheaded. That's not recorded in the book of John, but it is recorded in other gospels. So Jesus has just lost a friend, and Jesus is going to a desolate place, and a crowd is following Jesus, and Jesus is with his apostles. Jesus is with his disciples, and the book of John kind of takes us there, and it says, okay, he's gone to this place, he's there, and then he sees this multitude, and it says that he feeds them. It feeds them, you know, and I'll just read a little bit of that to you. It says, you know what? After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread? Now what you don't see in this text is what you do see in Matthew and in Mark's account of this encounter. And you have them highlighting the fact that Jesus sees this crowd and he had compassion for them. Not only did he have compassion for them, but his compassion was not simply that they were hungry. His compassion wasn't because they were on their feet all day or because they were walking around in the hot sun and maybe there were women and children there. I'm sure maybe he was compassionate about that, but the text in the two other Gospels tells us he had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then the other Gospels record this. Jesus began teaching them. So the five loaves and the two fish didn't come into this scenario until later down the line. First and foremost, Jesus expressed his compassion for their lostness. He expressed his compassion for the fact that they were sheep without a shepherd. And so that's a nuance. That's a difference. You see how when you omit something, it kind of changes the reading, not the point of the text but you don't have certain information so when we gather together and combine four gospels we get a full mosaic we get a bigger picture of what is happening so i won't address what's in luke's or mark's or matthew's or john's every time but i want you to understand what i'm going to present to you is is drawn out from all four gospels so that we can have the best and fullest encounter of this narrative and what i see in this narrative are three key principles there's others i think but I didn't take time to, to draw those out, but I want to I address three key principles that are going to be practical for you and helpful for you to take with you. So here we have the gospel. We have the feeding of the 5,000. So I'll finish the story. Jesus feeds us. Jesus is there, and he says to his disciples, you know, he has compassion on them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He begins to teach them. Now, this goes on throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, after Jesus is teaching them, 
And it says the crowd followed him. Why? Because they had seen the signs that Jesus had done. So they see these signs, they follow Jesus. That's attractive, by the way. When you see someone healing people, when you see someone with powers like this that they had not witnessed, it piques your interest. So, of course, they follow him, much like the nobleman's son who pursued Jesus more for what Jesus could do for him than who Jesus was. And so the crowd has the same situation going. They're following Jesus because they saw the signs that he had performed. And Jesus knows this. And he still has compassion for them. He knows the motives. He knows the desires of their heart. He knows what's going on, and he still has compassion because he looks on them and knows that they're sheep without a shepherd, and he begins to teach them. So he does this for the day. And towards the end of the day, everybody's hungry, right? The disciples come to him. Philip specifically says, Jesus, why don't you send the crowd away so they can go and buy food. Because the scripture says that where they were was a desolate place. It was not a place where they could just walk up to the nearest food truck or stand and say, hey, I'd like some food. They had to go somewhere to get it. They were in a remote location. Jesus had taken himself and his disciples to a remote location. There wasn't a lot going on around them other than what they were doing. And so Philip says, why don't you send them away so they can go get something to eat? We can get something to eat. We're hungry. Everybody's hungry. Jesus, you're human, right? And God, I get it. But yeah, we're all hungry. Let's do this. And Jesus responds to Philip, which Philip didn't say anything wrong, by the way, right? We're not angry with Philip because he was hungry, okay? By the time I get home, I might be hangry, all right? So, so I, I understand it. I get it. I get hungry, all this stuff. I'm human. Philip's hungry. Philip says to Jesus, you're hungry. We're hungry. They're hungry. Let them go. Let's rest. And Jesus says, I got an idea. <laughs> Philip, why don't you feed them? Now, 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 we think 5,000 people. How are you going to feed 5,000 people? They didn't have food. And then Jesus says, what food do we have? Or the disciples say, what food do we have? There happens to be this boy there. I don't know where he came from, but he's there. And he has five loaves and he has two fish. Now, we're not thinking a giant loaf of bread like Sarah Lee or any of those or, or Wonder Bread or whatever. These are probably little, little pieces of bread. And Jesus says, use that and you feed all these people. And we read this number 5,000, but in actuality, it was probably somewhere around between 15 to 25,000 people. And these are what scholars agree on. Why? Because these people would have most likely traveled with families. It said there were 5,000 men. If I'm looking out into a sea of 5,000 people and I have five loaves and two fish, and I have 200 denarii, which is what the scripture says. How much money do we have? Philip is given this charge to take care of all these people, these 15 to 25,000 people. And Philip responds by doing some quick calculations. How much money do we have? Well, we have 200 denarii. One denarii was uh, the U.S. equivalent of about $72.50. It was one day's wage then. And so Philip does these calculations. We can't feed all these people with 200 denarii. We can't even scratch the surface of satisfying these people. There's no way that we can ration whatever we can buy. There's no way that we can ration these things so that we can actually feed people. There's no way that everybody can even get a crumb. Philip's going through all of these things. And he's saying, Jesus, you've asked me to do this, but I I can't. And then something interesting happens. Jesus says, well, what do we have? 200 denarii. Then they realize there's this boy with five loaves and two fish. And despite Philip's doubt, despite the fact that Philip had been privy to all of these great and wonderful miracles that Jesus had performed, he still degenerates. He still 
relapses back to a natural mode. And he has these lenses on that only sees the natural. Jesus has turned water into wine. Jesus has healed people with a word. He's done all these things. You wouldn't think that upon seeing those things, all of a sudden you would turn away and say, you know what, that's cool that you did all that, but we're talking about something different. There's probably 25,000 people out there. How are you going to do that? That's above your miracle pay grade, Jesus. Philip didn't say that, but you get the idea. And Jesus does what? He takes the bread. He takes the fish. And he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he distributes it, and he gets the disciples to distribute it. And then there, were not, there was not only enough to satisfy the fifteen to 25,000 people, but enough for the disciples to be satisfied as well. And that's the story, and that's the story we know. So I think the question for you and for me that we ask ourselves is, what are the principles that we take away from this? And I've got three. Principle one. That Jesus is a compassionate king who cares not from a distance. He cares not from a distance, but he cares at close proximity. He cares at close proximity. When it says that Jesus had compassion on this crowd, this is not a courteous acknowledgement that he offers them. It's not a fleeting, passing, oh, that really stinks. I bet you're tired and hungry. Oh, that really stinks. You don't have a shepherd. Maybe you'll find one, and moves on. We know how this is. We drive by wrecks on Highway 85, and we say, man, that stinks for them. I really hate that for them. But we've probably forgotten it before we even get to our destination. Why? Because we're not emotionally attached. So our compassion has limitations. This is not the compassion that Jesus expressed. This is not a fleeting pity. This is not a passing pity. This is not some light, limited compassion. He is suffering alongside with these people. That's what it means. He suffers alongside of them. He is considering their position. He cares that they are sheep without a shepherd. It is not directly about their hunger. It's not about their food source. It is first and foremost about their spiritual status. It's about the fact that they're without a shepherd. It's not a courteous acknowledgement. This is genuine compassion. This is like seeing the wreck and grieving with someone because of the potential financial problems, the strain on family, the, 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 the medical issues, the rehabilitation issues, assuming they've lived through the casualty. This is someone who laughs and cries with someone else. I talked to a friend who lost his wife, lost his child a few days ago, just asking about the difference it made in his life to have someone that just acknowledged that, man, that really stinks for you, versus someone that journeyed with them as best as they could through their tragedy, through their hardship. Someone that listened, someone that cried with you, someone that genuinely grieved with you. And all the differences in the world is with someone that doesn't give you a courteous acknowledgement. Oh, I'm sorry, that happened. Let me go about my day but someone who says, I'm so sorry. Talk to me about this. Let me pray for you. Checking in with you. Let me see. And he said it made all the difference to have somebody, one person that checked in. Not someone that checked in and checked out for the duration of his suffering, but someone who checked in and stayed in and journeyed with him. That's compassion. That's what Jesus has for these people. That's why he stayed for the day after he lost John the Baptist after he's been ministering, after he's tired, and he stays out there in the hot sun, and he continues to give them the word of God all day long. 
Because that's what the gospel records, that Jesus stayed, had compassion, and began to teach them. He suffered alongside of these people. So let's not make the error of being dismissive about this text. They were in a precarious situation. Like sheep without a shepherd has monumental implications. I think it's a false teaching that, uh, or, or it's, it's, it's not true that sheep are dumb. A lot of times I've heard people say, well, sheep are dumb, and that's like who we are. Sheep aren't actually dumb animals, but they are defenseless animals. They are animals that need a shepherd. They are animals that need a guide because they wander around aimlessly. And Jesus uses shepherd and sheep language all throughout the New Testament. It's used in the Old Testament as well. It's used throughout the Bible and for good reason. Because all we like sheep have gone astray, it says in Isaiah. And as sheep, we wander aimlessly. Without a shepherd, we are vulnerable to all of these dangers that are around every corner. And we can't do a thing about it. We can't do a thing about it. If we try to ante up and be bold, firm, strong, and courageous against the devil without Jesus, we will fail every single time. We don't stand a chance. We're foolish to think that we can stand against the devil. Just because God hates the devil doesn't mean that you and your flesh will defeat him. It doesn't work that way. So accurate is the biblical description of people without Christ, sheep without a shepherd, in constant danger, Jesus saw that these people didn't have a shepherd to defend themselves. They didn't have a shepherd to take care of them. They didn't have a shepherd to protect them because they were completely vulnerable to all kinds of dangers. Jesus saw this, and he had compassion. They had no shepherd to show them the way. And you know what? When we talk about the compassion of Jesus... And we see this in this text that he had compassion. If Jesus has such compassion for this group that was comprised of all kinds of people, probably a lot of paganism, all kinds of stuff, and Jesus had compassion on them, what kind of compassion does he have for the saints? What kind of compassion does he have for you, who he's brought out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son? I love my children, and I will stand by them, and I will suffer beside my children. But I don't love my children nowhere near the way that God loves me. So, so, so I, can, I can barely even begin to understand the love affections that Christ has for me and the compassion that he has for me. And you know what I'm prone towards? I'm prone towards secularism. I'm prone towards finding satisfaction and comfort from things that aren't Christ. Those are my proclivities. Those are my propensities. Our default mode is often to run to so many other things for comfort. We run to other things for solidarity, for affirmation, for encouragement. Forgetting that the compassion of Christ on me means that I have solidarity in Him. I have His compassion. I have His affirmation. I have His comfort. I have His vindication. I have all of these things Because he is not one that cannot identify with me and my sufferings. We have good company in Christ as a compassionate king. So what do we do when we're prone to secularism? What do we do when our default mode is, I'm going to run away from Jesus. 
I'm sick, I'm going to run here. I'm, 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 I'm depressed, I'm going to run here. I'm not saying don't run to doctors. I'm not saying don't run to medicines. I'm not saying don't run to friends or confidants. I'm not saying don't do any of those things. I'm saying they can't do for you what Jesus can. And so our priorities should always be in the right place. And that's God. As someone who knows me from my inner being, as someone who has brought me out of darkness and into light, Lord, I need your compassion. I need your mercy. I need your grace. And go to him in his word and let his word bathe you to wash you and let the reality of biblical truth be a constant presence and a protection for you. That's principle one, that Jesus is a compassionate king who cares, not from a distance, but at close proximity. Principle number two, that the testing of the Lord is both a necessary and a beneficial component in the life of the saints. That the testing of the Lord is both a necessary and a beneficial component in the life of the saints. You see, where are you getting this from? So go back to the narrative. Jesus is talking and preaching to this crowd because they're sheep without a shepherd and he is concerned for them. It's getting later in the day. Philip approaches him. Let them go so that they may go eat and so that we may go eat because we're in a desolate place. We have to go find food, Jesus says. You feed them. This is a test that is given to Philip. The test is, Philip, you've seen me do mighty things. You've seen me do wondrous things. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in John 21 that the earth cannot contain the books that it would require to record all the works of Jesus during his life. The earth cannot contain that. And I have to believe that just maybe Philip and the other disciples saw some things that aren't recorded in the text for us. They saw things that Jesus had done. But let's just stick with the things that we know they saw, just a few miracles that we've seen thus far in the gospel. That should be enough for him to say, absolutely. It doesn't matter if there's 25,000. It doesn't matter if there's five people or a million. You're God. It's not a thing. But Philip fails his test. Because how does he respond when Jesus says, you take care of them. You feed them. He immediately goes into accountant mode and says, what kind of money do we have? What are our funds? 200 denarii? Okay, um, that's not going to do it. What are we going to do? And Philip's response should have been, you're the son of God. I can give you a fish scale and you can make it happen. doesn't matter. And he failed his tests. And Philip's response proved that he had degenerated or relapsed back to a natural man. Not that he lost his salvation. I want to be clear, I'm not saying that. But he put on the wrong lenses and he had the wrong perspective. He so easily dismissed the power of the one he was with. It's interesting that so many who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' power were the very ones to doubt him. So that tells me that I am prone to doubt. I'm prone towards those things. And you know what? Philip is the portrait of every man. That's why this matters so much. Philip is the portrait of every man because every man is tested. The scripture makes that very clear that God doesn't tempt, but God does test. God does test us. And so I think there's potential difficulty in saying that for some of you. Maybe you would say, why is God going to test us? Does that not create a potential for failure? You know, if he doesn't test us at all, then we really can't fail a test, right? That's what tests do. They provide an opportunity for you to give an account of your knowledge, right? And sometimes, speaking from experience, I failed to produce the knowledge that got me a passing grade. I hate testing. 
On the rare occasion that I'm like confident that I'll do fairly well, I'm okay with testing. You know, thank God I don't have to go through academic testing anymore. But I go through tests all the time as a believer, just as Philip did. And I fail a lot. And I pass a lot by the grace of God. But I can see where some of you might say, why does God have to test us? Does that not put us in a situation of potential failure? Why couldn't he just make it to where we would always succeed? Would that not glorify him more? Why have to have this reality of failure in life when it doesn't have to be so? It doesn't have to be that way. God can just make it to where it is always success by his beloved. Wouldn't that glorify him more? And I would charge you in this way. Be careful not to filter your understanding of God and the way he works through human processors, through a human processing. Everything God does, he does with perfect intentions. He does it for his glory and for your good. Everything. If you fail a test for his glory, for your good. Whether we pass or fail the test, God's intention is to draw us closer and to make us more like Jesus and to make himself more knowable to us. God is not in the business of pushing his beloved away. God is not in the business of making himself too difficult to know. God's agenda is never to make it more difficult for you to know him. He does not set set out to trip you up or to see that you would become lukewarm. That's not how God works. God's not trying to get you away from him. God's not trying to see to it that you will know him less and less with each passing day. That's not his agenda. Everything, everything, including your failure, is all for the purpose that you might know him more. And I'll tell you what, it's been in my life's failures, and there have been many, that I learned the most valuable lessons. And that's grace. That's grace. When my failures and anything else has deserved me hell, God has intended my failures for his glory. What could be meant for evil, God absolutely means for good. His ultimate agenda is that through is that through, through successes and failures, you grow to know him and burn with a white-hot passion for his glory. We need testing. We need the testing of the Lord, and here's why. Because we need to be reminded of where our help comes from. If you, if you pass in this test and you step back and say, let me get an honest assessment here, you're having, to, you're having to go back to your notes and say, okay, what's, what's, what's happening? What, what, what's, what's the reality? All right, I'm in a tight spot. I'm in a financial strain in my life. My marriage is in shambles or something like that. Let me step back and say, what is God showing me? What do I know of God? What do I know of the gospel? What do I need to believe a little more strongly? What do I need to embrace? And what do I need to apply? And that's a test. And it's good for you because you step back and you say, now I'm reminded. I'm reminded of what I have in Christ And the hope that is therein. So we need testing because it reminds us of where our help comes from. We need testing because it sobers us up and exposes us to our own weaknesses. I don't know about you, but sometimes when life is grand and glorious and good, it's easy to forget my need for Christ every day. But it's when these seasons come up where I'm in a definitive test, where I'm like, I could really fail this thing and crash and burn, or I can pass this thing. And it's usually a lot harder to pass these tests, by the way. And I'm looking at these things and I step back and I say, oh my goodness gracious, it's a sobering moment. Even if I fail, especially if I fail, it's a sobering moment. Because God doesn't hand me over to the enemy. If I fail, God says, now what are we learning? 
He had compassion on this crowd. He had compassion on Philip. Philip who walked up and saw all these things and said, hmm, didn't even factor into the equation that he was with the Son of God. At least it's not recorded there, right? He immediately goes to the natural mind. And such is some of us all the time, right? Testing is a gracious work of God because it works to develop perseverance. Is that not what James teaches us? Is perseverance not something we all want? James says, consider it joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know what? The testing of your faith develops perseverance. And I think it's remarkable that when we consider 1 John and the discussion on falling away for the last two, two weeks ago, for those couple of weeks, that we see that John says they went away from us because they were not of us. We would have known that they were of us if they would have remained with us, if they would have what? Persevered. I want perseverance. I want perseverance when I come up to these tests. I want the Lord to show me and teach me perseverance so that my faith won't be waning, that I won't end up shipwreck after shipwreck because I lack perseverance. Perseverance is something we need desperately. Testing forces you towards truth, which in turn will sharpen you. That's why we need testing in our life. What test is God currently putting you through? Where's your life? Where are you in your life? Or where in your life is he saying that you need to remember his deeds? You need to remember. You need to sober up, step back, and remember my work. Remember who I am. Let that, let that drive your decision making. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread. Not because of your doing, maybe because of your doing. And maybe you're at your wit's end and you're saying, God, I don't, I have, I'm, I'm, at a, I'm at a juxtaposition or I'm at a crossroad here. I'm sorry, I'm at a crossroad and I don't know what to do. This is a test and a test provides for you a platform. A platform for the glory of God, a platform to put on display why Jesus is better than any other thing. Maybe it's in your quest for purity. These tests come up in your life and you're at a crossroad. Do I pursue purity or do I not? And maybe during that time God is saying, you need to remember me. You need to step back. You need to sober up. And you need to get your mind in a place where it can be renewed and you can reflect on my goodness reflect on my glory and reflect on the fact that I am more lovely and satisfying than anything this world will offer you maybe it's in your pursuit of different employment I know we have uh, some in here that are that are trying to land a different job there's a test what do I do in the middle of this what do I do because you can fail that test too it's not a moral issue, right? But it's very much a spiritual issue. Do I take matters into my own hands or do I say, God, I'm going to, you know, how do you navigate through that? Ruth and Naomi, go back to that story. That's the whole thing. You know, sometimes we act, sometimes we wait. And there's a test. Lord, are you telling me to act? Lord, are you telling me to wait? How can you make those kind of decisions if you're not sobered up? If you're not thinking clearly about the goodness of the Lord? Maybe it's in the midst of your anxiety. Maybe it's in the midst of, of medical issues. Maybe it's in the midst of a loved one's 
anxiety or medical issues or whatever. There's always these tests like Philip. Hey, you feed these 25,000 people with nothing, basically. When God says, here's the platform, here's the context, here's what I've given you. And I mean it for good because I'm incapable of darkness because there's no darkness in me. What will you do with what I've given you? I've given you this opportunity to show the world that I am better, which makes no sense to the world. It makes no sense that we would choose. We would choose purity over 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 pleasure in that sense. It makes no sense that we, would, that we would choose light over darkness when darkness is so appealing. It makes no sense to a natural world. It makes zero sense. But you know, we're not here to glorify a mocker, a scoffer, or anyone in camped in darkness. We're here to glorify Jesus. Maybe God is saying to you in your situation now, remember me, nothing I do is arbitrary. Everything has meaning. Everything has purpose. Every test provides the opportunity for your personal growth and for putting on display for the world the glorious reality of God. The final principle is this. In our pursuit of joy and fulfillment, Jesus is ultimately and definitively satisfying. Let me show you where I get this from the text. So in the text, you have Jesus feeding potentially 25,000 people. And I just, I just think it's remarkable. I just think it's remarkable. And I'm not alone in this. I did some research to find that other scholars say the same thing, so I feel like I'm in good company, so I don't have a problem saying this. I think it's remarkable that Jesus, just a little bit later, we'll see in John, where he says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus takes bread, <clears throat> right? He takes bread. And although it seemed so insufficient... It's just bread. You know, it's just bread. It's not that remarkable. It's just bread. It's five loaves. What is five small loaves of bread? More like five rolls for 25,000 people. What is two fish for 5,000 people? And I can't help but think of Isaiah 53. I can't help but think that he is one that would be sent and that none would esteem him. He would be stricken. He would be smitten of God. He would not be welcomed here as a king. He's unassuming. How is that going to be sufficient enough for the world of people who would believe? How is that going to be sufficient? There's no red tape rolled out for Jesus, the King of Kings. He came humble. Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So I can't but help but see the connection of how this bread, how this bread seemingly insufficient, despite the unbelief, despite the doubt, despite the denial of the disciples, would actually completely satisfy the multitude, the many. And that's what Jesus does. He breaks this bread and he gives it to them. He shows compassion on them by meeting their physical needs now that he's already given them the words of life. And I think what we see is the picture of the bread of life. Necessary unto salvation. This miracle stands out because it's layered with implication. The big picture, it promotes his deity. Small picture, it points to the sufficiency of Christ. The crowd, like Philip, is a portrait of who we are. The crowd also provides a portrait of who we are. It's a mirror that we can see because we are all, we were all sheep without a shepherd. 
Christ had compassion on us, even though our interests are often and definitely were often on what he can do for us rather than who he is to us. Jesus, bro- Jesus bro- uh, broke bread that was sufficient enough to satisfy the many because it represents Jesus as the bread of life. His own body was broken in order that we may be ultimately satisfied in him. Let me just quickly walk you through the mechanics of the sufficiency of Jesus. We say this all the time. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. Jesus is better. You need someone who can sympathize with you? Jesus has compassion for you like you would not believe. You need someone who can understand what you're going through? He has been tempted in every way, and he knows every single hardship. You need a guide? He has authored your steps. I know, O Lord, that it's not for man to direct his steps, Jeremiah 23 says, but it's the Lord who does these things. You need someone who knows all that's gonna, that it's all going to be okay. He not only planned the ends, but he planned the means. You carry such a heavy burden, huh? Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You need someone who will stand in the gap. He is a substitute for you. You need someone who will defend you. He's a warrior, the Bible says. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is mighty in battle. He is our sun and a shield. He is our sword and our shield. The Lord is our deliverer, it says in the scriptures. And he will defend you. You need someone who will make wrong what is right. He is your vindication over and over and over and over. What God shows us is that you were custom made for Jesus. You were custom made for Jesus. That's why the relationship is a perfect fit. That's why your marriage will not ultimately satisfy you. Your career will not ultimately satisfy you. Your hobbies will not satisfy you. Your friendships, they will not ultimately satisfy you. Your parenthood will not ultimately satisfy you. Why? Because it's not designed to. Are these things bad? No, not at all. Can they be great and glorious things and gracious works of God? Absolutely. Can they glorify God? Yes. But are they meant to hold the same position as the sufficiency of Christ? Absolutely not. Because you were custom made for Jesus Christ. He is sufficient because you were custom made for him. Nothing else is meant to satisfy you. Jesus is better than all other things. When placed on a scale with anything else, Christ outweighs them all. And it should come as no surprise that the great songwriter wrote, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest <clears throat> excuse me, on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Oh, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have made it very clear 
that you alone are sufficient for us. Lord, we do not believe it to be a coincidence at all that man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. That you are the word, and that you became flesh, and that you called yourself the bread of life. And Father, I pray. Father, I pray that we would consider those realities very seriously. And Father, that we would seek our satisfaction solely in you. Lord, that we would be able to make right distinctions between the things that are okay, between the things that you have allowed us to see and do and be a part of and experience that are a part of your grace. Let us make the distinction between those things such as family and friendships and careers and hobbies, financial stability and all of these things, but May we be very mindful and sober to the fact that they will not satisfy us. That you have been given that we might be satisfied. And we can only be truly and purely and definitively satisfied because you are purely, holy, and definitively sufficient. May we live our lives that way. And when we fail the test because we lose sight of that, we deny that, we forget that, we don't believe that, whatever it is, in your grace, would you teach us and make us stronger after the fact? And should we pass those tests? Lord, may we do so exclusively for your glory. And may we boast in you and not ourselves when maybe we pass a test. Because, Lord, it's been made very clear from the beginning of John's gospel that anything and everything good is from heaven. So, Father, we thank you for the past and we thank you in advance for the countless successes that we've had in Jesus' name and for the failures that are on our doorstep tomorrow, the next day. When those happen, Lord, I pray that repentance, that our lives would be characterized by repentance, that growth would be a mark on our lives and that our effort to glorify you will be known to the world so that you might be seen as altogether lovely and glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.